Over the last four weeks, we've been working our way toward a place in scripture, Matthew 24 and, and 25. And I believe Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus describing in his own words what the final days of this world are gonna be like before he comes in his second coming. And I wanna remind you that I, I do believe there's a difference between this event that we call the rapture and another event that's called the second coming of Jesus. I, I believe that the Bible teaches that there'll be a rapture, God will take his church out of this world, and then for seven years, God will turn his attention back toward Israel. Sometimes we call those seven years the seven years of tribulation. Those seven years will end within the second coming of Jesus that will usher in his thousand year reign on this earth just before he makes a new heaven and a new earth. Now, plenty of people see that a little differently than I do, that's okay, we can always agree to disagree on that, but I am convinced that's how it's gonna be, but I do hold that with an open hand. And the reason I think it's important that we aren't dogmatic about that, and I'm kinda skeptical of people who may be dogmatic about uh, things about the future that have not quite happened yet, is because we need to understand this, that when we're talking about biblical events that have already happened, events from the past, it's like that timeline, right, that we've been teaching for years and years with our children. We can see things that have already happened laid out on a timeline like that, but when we're talking about biblical events in the future, prophetic events, think of it this way. You can't see it already laid out. It's as if that timeline does this. It turns this way, right? Now we're looking at future events head on. And so we might can see the events, but we can't always see the gaps and the time in between those events that God has said is gonna happen. That's how it is in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets, they were looking at future events and they were looking at them head on so they could see those events, but they couldn't always see the time in between, the gaps in between. And sometimes there were years, hundreds of years, even thousands of years sometimes between some of those prophetic events. Let me give you an example, all right, what I'm saying. Isaiah 61, in Isaiah chapter 61 the prophet Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. These are words of prophecy about the future, about the Messiah, 700 years before the Messiah even entered the womb of Mary. All right, so listen to Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, I wanna leave that line up on the screen for you, the day of vengeance of our God. Now, 700 years after Isaiah spoke these words, Jesus comes into our world. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he begins to read from the Old Testament. And he chooses that passage out of Isaiah. We're gonna leave that one on the screen, and I want you to hear what Jesus says as he reads this passage from Isaiah. It's in Luke chapter four, verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's just reading it right out of the Old Testament. Because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. Notice what he didn't say. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, Luke says, then he closed the book. He didn't read the part about and the day of vengeance of our God. Luke says he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, listen, today this scripture, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He, he didn't read the scripture about the day of the vengeance of our God has come because that wasn't being fulfilled on that day. That was gonna be a future day. Jesus closed the book in mid-sentence and he left off that line, the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because this was his first coming. His first coming was not for vengeance, but for salvation. It's the second coming of Christ that will be about vengeance in this world. But here's what Isaiah's doing, right? He's looking at future prophecy head on. He can see the events, but he cannot tell there's gonna be at least a 2,000-year gap between the first coming of Jesus, the acceptable year of our Lord, and the second coming of Jesus, the day of vengeance. Now, I want you to keep that in mind when we are reading about future prophecies, events that haven't happened yet. We, like those prophets, we're looking at those events head on, and that's what we're doing now when, yes, we get to Matthew 24 and 25. We're looking at future events head on. And God will tell us everything that we need to know. He won't always tell us everything that we want to know. I haven't met a person yet that has perfect understanding of God's word. God's word is perfect, but I don't think any of us are gonna be able to perfectly understand it all. So know this, Matthew 24 and 25 are in many ways a Reader's Digest version of the book of Revelation. Matthew 24, 25, like the book of Revelation says, whoever reads this will be blessed. But for some of you, if you're thinking, well, that's kind of overwhelming for me to read that, start with Matthew 24 and 25, because it's a summary of the book of Revelation. Matthew 24, 25 tell the story of Revelation, but they tell the story. Jesus is telling the story of Revelation in Matthew 24, 25 from a different perspective. The book of Revelation is told about the end days through heaven's perspective. This is why John is caught up to heaven and he will tell us about the end days from heaven's perspective. But in Matthew 24, 25, Jesus is telling about us about the end of days from earth's perspective. And that makes sense. In Revelation, John is in heaven seeing it, but in Matthew 24, 25, Jesus is on earth telling about it. In Matthew 24 and 25, heaven has come down to earth. Jesus himself is on the earth with four of his disciples on the Mount of Olives, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he's telling them about these events of the end times. Matthew 24, 25 is obviously a much shorter telling of these events than Revelation is, but I think the important thing to know is a different perspective. One is from heaven, one is from earth, but it's the same events that are happening. So let's start today from heaven's perspective. Revelation chapter four, but keep your finger, if you're 
in Matthew 24, because you're like, I've been waiting, Pastor, for four weeks. You've been saying we're gonna do Matthew 24. Well, Lord willing, today's the day. So go ahead and put something in Matthew 24, but go to Revelation 4, because we wanna today kind of lay side by side the perspective of the end days from both heaven's perspective and earth's perspective, both from the book of Revelation and from what Jesus has to say in Matthew 24, 25. Is that clear as mud? Everybody get that? Are you hanging with me so far? Yeah? All right, good. The cameraman gave me a thumbs up, so he's with me. We're good. Revelation chapter four, verse one. John is writing this, right? And he says, after this, I looked And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, what John is about to see is indescribable. He is about to see the full glory of God the Father, the full glory of God the Spirit, the full glory of God the Son. And there's two main things that come into focus here in Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter five. In Revelation chapter four, the focus is on a throne. In Revelation chapter five, the focus is on a scroll. A throne in four, a scroll in five. So we're gonna look at that. Revelation chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once, John says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now what he's seeing is God the Father is the one. You'll see this in a moment. He's the one that's seated on this throne. He is at the center of the universe. Not just the center of this scene in heaven, but God right now in this moment, God the Father is at the center of everything in our world. Everything is revolving around him. And John says he has the appearance of Jasper as a stone and Carnelian, another kind kind of stone. Jasper was similar to a diamond. Carnelian would be like some type of ruby, brilliant red kind of color. John's looking, he's grasping for ways to describe this indescribable view that he has of Almighty God seated on his throne. Colors, brilliant, that he cannot describe. And from the throne, you have these not only brilliant colors of of diamond projecting colors, we can't imagine this brilliant red light emanating from the throne, but all that color is encircled by an emerald rainbow, he says, this greenish rainbow. That's not the only thing around the throne. Look at verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones, 24 thrones around the other throne, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. There's a lot of speculation. Who are these 24 elders? Nobody knows for sure. Some people think these are 12 leaders of the Old Testament tribes and 12 apostles over the New Testament church. That sounds good to me, but really who they are is not nearly as important as the throne that they surround. We know who's on that throne. That's God himself. Verse five says, from the throne, the throne, that's the throne in the middle, came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. So now we see the Holy Spirit represented by these seven torches of fire. Most scholars think that this is symbolic of the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. 
the perfect number seven, the Holy Spirit in all of his perfected glory. So here's the Holy Spirit in all of his glory in front of God the Father in all of his glory with all these brilliant colors surrounded by these 24 other thrones and then coming out from them was this floor, this vast pavement of glass or crystal. Verse six says, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That means nobody's like him. He is one of a kind. He is unique. He is in a class all by himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He has no start. He has no finish. He was and he is and he is to come. These creatures, by the way, can be seen in Isaiah chapter 6. They can be seen in Ezekiel chapter 1. They're called seraphim. They're high-ranking angels in God's creation. Verse nine says, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. And then John's attention is moved from the throne to this scroll in Revelation chapter five. Are you following me in Revelation? You didn't know maybe when you got out of bed today, you're gonna read Revelation today. Here you are, Revelation chapter uh, five, right? He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who's seated on the throne? God the, God the Father, And John says, now I see in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll is a rolled up piece of parchment. It's written on the outside. It's written on the inside. It's written on both sides. And it's sealed up with seven seals, like seven globs of wax, students, right? Seven seals that are closing this scroll. The first century Christians knew immediately what this was. This was a title or a deed to something. This is how significant financial transactions would happen in the first century. A person would purchase something of great value. Maybe it was a home. Maybe it was a a piece of property. And the terms of that financial agreement would be written on that piece of parchment. And then it would be rolled up and it would be sealed. And only once that buyer had paid for that purchase would he then be worthy to break the seals and open that scroll up to represent that this now is in my name. This now belongs to me. The scroll that God the Father is holding in his right hand is the title deed to the entire world, to everything that's been created. Remember those 24 elders just got through praising him because of all that he did, all that he had created. And he holds now the title deed to that. Inside of that scroll is God's plan for this world. Inside that scroll is the end of sin. 
Inside that scroll is the end of death. Inside that scroll is the end of sickness. Inside that scroll is the end of suffering. Inside that scroll is the end of Satan. Inside that scroll is your future and mine. Inside that scroll is our hope. Inside that scroll is a new heaven and a new earth. Inside that scroll is the end of Satan, our great enemy himself. Our future, our hope, our eternity, our Destiny is all wrapped up inside that scroll. And John says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody in heaven, not any of those Angelic beings with all those eyes and their mighty mightiness was worthy to go and take that scroll from the hand of God. No earth creature that's ever existed was worthy to go and take that scroll from the hand of God. Abraham stood there in awkward silence. Moses didn't make a sound. David didn't step forward. Peter didn't make so much as a peep. If there was no one worthy that could open that scroll, then that means Satan wins. If there's no one worthy to open that scroll and bring into fruition everything that's in that, that means Satan wins, death wins, sin wins. And John's heart is broken at the thought that this sin and suffering and agony and death are just gonna go on and on without end. In verse five, one of the elders said to the weeping John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Who is the root of David? That's Jesus. Listen, it's just Old Testament. This is Jewish stuff through and through. Who has conquered sin? Who has conquered Satan? Who has conquered death? Who has conquered the grave? That's Jesus. He alone is qualified to open that scroll because he paid for its contents with his blood. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John likely probably thought he would turn and see this ferocious lion. But that's not what he sees. Instead, he sees a lamb that looks like it's already been slaughtered, like it's already been hung up in the processor's freezer, but this lamb's not dead. He said, this lamb's standing. Verse seven says, and he went, this lamb went where none other could go. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Listen, throughout history, there have been people that have tried to take that scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. There have been those that have come and gone on the scene of human history that have tried to take the contents of that scroll and this world's kingdom for themselves. And surely they've won battles against other kings and kingdoms and nations, but they could not win against sin, against Satan, against death, 
But then there came one. There came one like no other because he was not only fully man, he was also fully God. Sin could not hit him. Satan could not have him. And death could not hold him. He conquered sin. And he conquered death. And he conquered Satan as the Lamb of God by shedding his blood on the cross. He was despised, the Bible says. He was rejected. He was smitten. He was stricken. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was chastised. He was pulverized in your place and in my place so that by his blood we and all created things might be redeemed and bought for his own possession that he might make all things new. Jesus is fully God, so he can represent heaven, and he's fully man, so he can represent earth. He alone is worthy to step to that throne in the middle of all things and take that scroll out of the right hand of his Father. He alone can break those seals and defeat Satan and sin once and for all, and once and for all, wipe every tear from our eyes and make all things new. He alone can do this. Look at verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They were bowing before the throne, but now they're bowing before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They know this is the moment the saints, me and you, we've been praying for. We've been waiting for this moment. And they sang a new song. They've had this song waiting for this day. It wasn't a song to be sung until this moment. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed, you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now now let me tell you, these seven seals, they contain the events that are gonna happen across these seven years of tribulation ending with the return of King Jesus to set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. The first four seals that Jesus is gonna break on this scroll reveal what is known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Don't think, I don't think we should necessarily think of these four horsemen as people, but as forces that are impacting the world. In fact, this will help you. I'll just go ahead and put the chart up here. We'll go ahead and try to make this a little more clear for you. Get your phones out. I know you like to take pictures of this stuff, all right? Thanks to Davey, who created this wonderful chart for us. He's doing a great job with so many things like this. This just kind of represents the scroll that Jesus had sealed with these seven seals. He's gonna break seal one, two, three, and four. Those are gonna happen really in the first part of those three and a half years of tribulation. There's gonna be years 
in between the breaking of some of those seals. Seal number five kind of bridges the first half of the tribulation and the second half of the tribulation. When you get to seal six and seal seven, it's no longer years in between the breaking of these seals. They're happening faster. And with the breaking of that seventh seal, the breaking of the seventh seal initiates another seven set of judgments that come in the form of trumpets. And with that seventh trumpet, it initiates another seven set of judgments in the form of the pouring out of bowls. When you get to that seventh seal, though, it's rapid fire. Seventh seal, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It happens so quickly, some people say that those things are all happening simultaneously. It's like a woman in childbirth. Those contractions, they grow in intensity and they grow in frequency and that's how it will be across those seven years. Those first several seals are spaced out over years but then it's fast and it's quick and it's intense. Now let's go to the next words in Revelation chapter six. Congratulations, you've done Revelation four and five and now you're gonna touch on Revelation chapter six. John says, now I watched. When the lamb opened one of the seven seals, here we go, here we go. He says, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now white horses in the scripture are associated with conquest. They're associated with triumph. They're associated with majesty with victory and some say this rider on this white horse is Jesus but that's not the case he will ride in on a white horse but not till revelation 19 he will not ride into this world on a white horse until he has broken all seven of these seals this is only the breaking of the first seal what we have happening here is it seems that there's somebody imitating Jesus on a white horse here. I think what this is representing is a time of worldwide unity, worldwide peace. A person known as the Antichrist will certainly be a key figure in promoting worldwide peace and unity, but it's all counterfeit. It's a sham, it's a phony. There's gonna be a false peace. The Antichrist will be promoting a peace that's based on lies, manipulation, deception, he will lull the world into a false sense of security. The Antichrist will promise prosperity and success and peace in this new world order that he will create. The Antichrist will convince the world that he can provide and he alone can provide what the world has long been looking for. He will make a peace treaty with Israel just as the angel Gabriel told Daniel 2,600 years ago that he would. He'll make this peace treaty with Israel, probably also encourage them, help them, perhaps even build for them a temple in Jerusalem so they can return to offering sacrifices as they, as they did in the Old Testament. Now, is what is happening in Israel today leading us to this, is this current war that's happening in Israel today setting the stage for this hero to emerge and to do what all the pundits are scratching their heads out, scratching their heads over today trying to figure out how, how can there be a solution? 
How can there be peace in the midst of all this? Is all this setting the stage for this hero to emerge that will appear to bring peace to this region like we've never seen before? Is what we're seeing in Israel today on our news, is this all a warm up for the appearing of the Antichrist? I can't tell you that for certain, but it certainly doesn't require much imagination to think it could be so, does it? That's the first seal. Now hold your place in Revelation 6, and let's go to Matthew 24. You made it, Matthew 24. Verse 3. Now as he sat, that's Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one, what? Deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now what does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus just described the first seal that he's gonna break on that scroll that we just read about in Revelation. Jesus is predicting in Matthew chapter four exactly what he's gonna perform in Revelation chapter six. Don't miss the point here, by the way. This is Jesus in charge. Don't you think for a minute that in the tribulation, Satan's in charge? Don't you think for a minute during the tribulation that the Antichrist is in charge? This is Jesus in control of all of these things. He is in charge of all this. The tribulation, the Antichrist, all of it will be happening in the sovereign, nail-scarred hands of Jesus. So if you know Jesus today, fear not. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is calling his shot. Let's go back to Revelation, pick up where we left off. Chapter six, verse three, Revelation. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the second seal here is war. The first seal was fake peace. The second seal is war, the we are the world sense of unity and kumbaya and peace and oneness that the Antichrist had peddled is suddenly now shattered with the breaking of this second seal. This time of war will be far worse than anything that has ever been seen before. Nation against nation, civil wars within nations themselves. This will be all characterized by a degree of violence that we have not even yet begun to see. Now hold your place in Revelation. Go back to Matthew 24 where we left off. Jesus is speaking in verse six and he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. What does that sound like? Does it not sound like the second seal that we just read about in Revelation? This world will look like it's falling apart. But it's not, Jesus is calling the shot here. In Matthew 24, he is predicting exactly what he's gonna perform in Revelation chapter six. He's calling the shot. Okay, back to Revelation to pick up the third seal. 
Verse five, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and his rider had, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. The third seal is all about a global famine. This will be the most devastating famine the world has ever seen. People will be dying all over the world because of famine, certainly in large part probably brought on by all of these wars that will be happening, happening on a global scale. So if you lived through all the wars and you survived all the violence, now there's no economy left. There's no food to eat. You're likely to die of starvation now. And this is still early in the birth pangs, mind you. We're not even at the hard stuff yet. Hard labor toward the second coming of Jesus hasn't even started yet. Now let's go back to Matthew and pick up where Jesus left off. Midway through verse seven is where we left off. And the next thing he says is, and there will be what? Famines. It very much sounds like Jesus just described the third seal that he's gonna break. What's happening? In Matthew 24, Jesus is predicting the very things that he's preforming in Revelation chapter six. Let's get the fourth seal. Let's go back to Revelation, pick up where we left off. Verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. What's the deal with Death and Hades? Well, Death takes the body, Hades takes the soul. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine. We've already seen those seals, right? Sword and famine and with pestilence. Watch that word, pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. Now go back to hear what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, pick up where we left off. He says, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And he says, and all these are just the beginning. We're just going into labor. It's just starting. These are the beginning of stars. And it sounds here like Jesus just described the fourth seal that he's gonna break. He's calling the shots, do you see that? In Matthew 24, he's predicting exactly what he's gonna perform. In Revelation chapter six, nothing like these four seals has ever happened on the earth, and yet, he says, this is just the beginning of what's gonna happen. Now look, we're gonna stop there today. Jesus on the earth, Matthew 24, predicting what he's gonna do. Revelation six, Jesus in heaven, performing what he said he's gonna do. Hopefully next week we'll pick up where we're leaving off. We'll pick up in the middle of the tribulation. We'll just kind of keep laying side by side what Jesus says in Matthew 24 with what Jesus is doing in the book of Revelation. But I just wanna land on this. All of this to remind somebody in here today, Jesus has got you. He's got you. If he's got the entire created world in his hands and he is weaving this all together to perfection, I just need to remind you today, he's got you. He's in control. I know maybe the Last week in your life has sort of felt out of control. But I want to remind you today it's not out of control. 
It may feel like it's all falling apart, but I want to remind you today that because of Jesus, it's not falling apart, it's falling together. He's got you. Would you trust him today? Would you you rest in his greatness? Would you rest in his faithfulness today? Would you trust him today? You have nothing to fear today if you're a child of God. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, you have everything to fear. If you're not a child of God today, the worst day you've had in this world doesn't compare to the worst day that's yet ahead of you, which is eternal separation from God. The good news for you is that day hasn't happened yet. It could happen at any moment, but it hasn't happened yet. Today's the day of salvation. Today, your sin, your guilt, your fear, your shame, all of that can go away with the bending of your knee, the confessing of your mouth that Jesus is my Lord. As we sing in just a moment, if you've never given your life to Jesus, I'll be standing right down here. You say, I don't know what to do. Let's just start with a brief conversation, me and you, all right? We'll do that. I'm telling you, he's calling people to be saved. I got to lead a 19-year-old man to Christ this past Wednesday whose heart's just being stirred. We just watch Rick follow the Lord in baptism. I'm telling you, God is on the move. I believe he's bringing souls into his kingdom. I believe those, that time's gonna end one day. I think it's gonna end really soon, but today could be your day of salvation. So God, we bow our hearts before you today. Jesus, I'm so thankful that the scroll is in your hand and it belongs to you. It could never belong to another. It belongs to you and to you alone. So God, I thank you that as a child of God today, we don't have to be afraid. But God, my heart's heavy. It's heavy today for those who don't know you. It's heavy today for those who are afraid or for those who should be but haven't yet realized that they should be. So God, I pray that today people would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And God, I pray that your church today would live like it's true of us, that our hearts, our minds, our lives, God, would reflect that we're the people of God, that there would be a courage, a compassion, a boldness, a strength, a fearlessness in us because we know personally the one who holds the scroll.